Volunteering changed my life. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Greetings. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast. That would be a real page turner if, um, you know, podcasts had pages. The Raw Safari Podcast. Y'all, I am really, really excited to bring today's episode to you. So um, for the second time in three weeks, I am bringing you an interview with an author. And I know this isn't the normal fare for Rasafari, but much like what happened two weeks ago with Queer Ducks, um, this is this is an author who deserves to be on this podcast. Oh, and also she she's kind of pretty famous. This is this is really exciting, y'all. So today I am bringing you my interview with Mary Alice Monroe. Now, if you have ever heard of the Beach House book series or the Beach House movie starring Andy McDowell, well, Mary Alice Monroe is the person who created the Beach House and and writes that series of books. And um, as you can imagine, she's a heck of a storyteller because that's, you know, what she does for a living. But she doesn't just tell stories in her books. Mary Alice Monroe made a decision a while ago that she was going to use her fiction writing to inform people about animals and the the land that she loves and the conservation that is necessary to save those animals and plants and, and all the things that she loves. And um, she does a lot of research before she writes her books. She's volunteered with a ton of incredible animals. She also sits on the board at the South Carolina Aquarium and of the Leatherback Trust and is an Island Turtle Team volunteer. Uh, yeah, this is this is an author, but this is an author who spends a lot of time doing cool animal stuff. And, uh, you know, officially... We're here to talk about the release of her new book. It's called The Search for Treasure, and it is the second book in her Islanders series for um, kids like eight and up. And uh, it's a great book. It's really cool. There's some neat animal stuff in there. Uh, There's a diamondback terrapin named Pierre that I loved, uh, a gator named Big Al. There's good stuff and good information. But we talk about so much more. Mary Alice Monroe has lived. And, you know, if you don't know the Beach House, um, part of the the whole plot and and everything that happens in it has to do with sea turtle conservation. So uh, this is a person who is near and dear to my heart. Uh, So I'm really excited to share this with you, and I realize I can't really tell you anything more in the intro because why should I tell her story when she is a master storyteller and can tell her own story? So uh, I'll let her do that in the interview. 
But first, some quick reminders. Uh, you can support the podcast by hitting up patreon.com slash Rossafari. You can get some merch and, and go and stream the pod at rossafari.com. And of course, make sure you're following along on social media at Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and at Rossafari Pod on TikTok. Um, all right, I guess that's really it. I really want to get to this interview. I'm really excited. Mary Alice Monroe, huge deal, awesome person, great storyteller, cool stuff. And yes, there is a, well, just say it. You guys know what it is. Poop story. Poop story. Poop story. Poop story. So without further ado, sit back and check out my interview with Mary Alice Monroe, author, conservationist, and all-around cool human being. So, uh, why don't we start off by you telling me uh, who you are and what you do? Hi, everybody. I'm Mary Alice Monroe, and I am an author. I've been writing books for over 30 years, but for 20 years, it's hard to believe it's actually 20 years this year that I made a decision that I was going to write books that were set against an endangered species, whether it's an animal or a plant. Um, something that was concerning us in conservation so that I could bring it to the public in a way, not with nonfiction, but through the power of story. And I did that first with sea turtles because I've been working with sea turtles for 23 years. I wanted to create a story that brought my readers to my world, to the beach, and saw these animals and up close and personal. And that was called The Beach House. And I tossed it out. And it was my first New York Times bestseller. I think people responded to it. And ever since then, I've been doing the same for different species. And now I'm with kids. So that's what we're here today about is to celebrate the second in a series, Search for Treasure, that I'm writing for kids, middle grade. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to talk about all of those things. Um, but let's let's start off with with this. Why did you switch to to middle grade from you know adult fiction? Well, I'd written a couple picture books when I had a something extra I wanted to say. I had a little more material and I thought this would be fun for kids. A Turtle Summer, a butterfly called Hope. I just wrote a picture book with f- photographs. And they were fun, but when I went to the schools, I was really excited by these older children who are reading chapter books. Something about those 8 to 12-year-olds, well, my God, they have so much enthusiasm. They believe they can change the world. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a ballerina and a judge. And they have cocky confidence. (laughs) And I thought, okay, I want to write for you guys. And, you know, honestly, when I talk to a group, like an audience of adults, And I'm talking about climate change, or I'm talking about the plastics in the ocean the size of Texas. Parents and adults, they just like, oh, what can I do? But you say that same thing to a bunch of middle grade kids, and they're like, oh, well, let's go clean it up. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I'm writing for you. Also because um, it was a sense of responsibility that, we're leaving this planet to these kids. And middle grade 
kids want to change the world. I think when they get to high school and above, they're worried about the interior landscape a little more. Yes. But I think the outer landscape still speaks to these young kids. And I thought if I could catch them now, really get them to be unafraid of the wild, to not be afraid of bugs and get out and explore, then they'll be explorers for life. So when I was asked by a publisher, would I write this series for kids? It was an easy yes. That is so cool. And I have to tell you, I have a son. He is seven and will be turning eight in August. Um, Ah. His name is Miles. (laughs) And... um, uh, he has become a voracious reader, something that, that I, I am very passionate about as well and, and have mm. instilled in him. And uh, I cannot wait to share these <laughs> books with him as, as I was – Yeah, as I was reading through Search for Treasure, I was getting excited. Not just – I mean, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm a little bit older than the target audience, <laughs> but I was still really enjoying it. Um, oh, but I, love that. I could just picture Miles – getting to know the kids in this book through. And that's, I'm so excited. That's it. You know, but that's it. When I started, the first one is I, the um, Islanders, and that just came out last summer. And when I started talking to the kids, it was such a joy to see, you know, they don't lie. We loved the book. It was my, you're my favorite author. And I'm just like, wow, I didn't expect to feel so happy. They just <laughs> loved the book. But they identified with either Macon or Jake, the two boys, or Lovey, the girl. They all felt, a, you know, attuned to them, and they wanted to go on this adventure with them. So with the second book now, there's a whole new slew of adventures. But with the kids, um, they get to the island, and they're wondering, what's next? What are they going to do now? And that's where I got to start with Search for Treasure. They're and, great readers. And that's so them. cool. Yeah, that's so cool, too, because I, I, I haven't had the chance to read The Islanders yet, although I'm going to now that I've, I've read you. this. Um, especially well, Miles should it, start there. Well, yes, I'm going to. <laughs> yes, I'm buying it, and then he'll get them both when I'm done. Um, but And especially because I know it deals with turtles, and, and sea turtles are an animal that I'm wildly passionate about. Ah, they're one of my big four. That. Yes, they're actually what um, – they're the first animal species I ever fell in love with and why I'm doing all of the conservation stuff that I do now, like this podcast. Uh, it's because of sea turtles. You know. No kidding. What yeah. was your first memory? I'm just so curious. I went to um, aquariums whenever we were on vacation or anything, yeah. and I lived kind of close to Baltimore, so we would go to the National Aquarium. Oh, sure. And um, specifically when they got uh, Calypso, the sea turtle there. And I remember so distinctly, uh, the National Aquarium is this gorgeous big building mm-hmm. that's, you know, got yeah. this open pool, and then you could just look up for stories. And as a right. kid, it's like, it looks like a spaceship. And I just remember standing at the water and this turtle surfaced right under me. They're kind of picture hogs. They really are. They are. are. They are. <laughs> and my heart just like, I don't know, it was like that thing in the Grinch. It grew like three sizes. And I was like, oh, oh I love you. And I'm never leaving this spot. And I don't even care about the rest of the aquarium. <laughs> That's so cute because that happened here. It's and- Charleston, we have the South Carolina. Oh, yes. Current, I and love it's it. very similar to the Baltimore in that it's, you know, three stories high. And Coretta Coretta, which is the Latin name for loggerhead, which is the turtles that nest here. Coretta is just a, a photo bomber. She'll be right there and come down. And you see the kids 
squeal and run to the side of the tank. And she just sits there and poses for all the pictures with the kids. I think there's something iconic about sea turtles, and I wish, they're non-threatening, first of all. Right. And they're they're big. I moved to the island permanently here, Isle of Palms, right outside Charleston. And the first thing I did was be a turtle lady because I wanted to get to know the turtles. And so I am I became permitted and so for 24 years now, I've been on the team, but I also work with the big leatherbacks in Costa Rica. It's oh. pretty amazing. That's a turtle. And <laughs> I highly encourage you to go see, check out the leatherbacks. We, um, we have found here in South Carolina over the last 20 years that the education about sea turtles has grown exponentially. People now know more about them. But 20 years ago when I began, they did not know what lights out for sea turtles meant. They meaning tourists who had come to the island, come to Wild Dunes, to Charleston, and go to the beach. And I thought, what can I do to help both the sea turtles because of light disorientation in the shrimp boats, as well as that answer the questions that really sincere curiosity that parents and their kids had about these sea turtles, no matter where they were from. And I figured that's the power of fiction. I can use my stories as a force for good. So I sat down and I re I changed the way I wrote books. I didn't work from archetypal themes. Instead, I looked at the sea turtle and I thought, what can I do? Um, what can I learn? How can I take this lesson and put it into a parallel for human stories? And I did. And that's what the beach house was, was the first book in the series. I knew I'd written something different and I tossed it out. And sure enough, it was my first times hit and it spawned the whole series as well as every book I've written since. And I'm thinking it's happening again. It was the right book at the right time. Sure. And I think, John, it's happening with this series for kids. I was asked to write it, and it was post-pandemic, where we're all feeling plugged in and wanting to get outdoors. And I knew that I wanted my grandchildren to have the same experience my kids had when I took them out to the wild. And I set the book on this remote island, Deweese Island, accessible only by boat. And I put these kids on there. It was like Lord of the Flies without the violence. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're stranded on this island for the summer. And I compelled them with no internet to go outdoors, despite the moans and groans at the beginning, to explore and to find out that, hey, you know, it is fun and it is pretty cool to be out here and to lose their fear. When the book came out, it debuted at number two on the New York Times list. And that's more than, I think, just storytelling. I think it's really the right book at the right time that people, meaning moms and dads, the gatekeepers, they're looking for stories that can get their kids unplugged. And that's the goal of the series is to get these kids inspired to get outside Have fun with your parents and your grandparents. Get out there and don't be afraid. Absolutely. And I love that for a lot of reasons, including because as a parent, I constantly worry a little bit when I see fear in my son that like, what can I do to fix this? What can I do? I don't want, um, you know, I don't want 
Miles to be afraid of the world, but I also want him to be aware of the dangers out there. And I think um, mm-hmm. it's it's good to strike that balance and show that you can be, you know, be afraid of the things that are actively something to be afraid of, but not most things, which is what most well, kids fear, you know? One of the things that's fun about being a novelist is that you can take that concept, what you're talking about, how can I tell my, help my child not be afraid? And in story form, you show you model it, you show how you can do it. So that's why I'm hoping people read it, adults too, and get ideas. But Honey is the grandmother in book one, The Islanders, okay? Yes. And she's a little depressed. So there's a lot of um, her own healing going on with her grandson. But her position is, you know, you, you don't use the internet. It's no good. She took too strong a stance, but that was who she was. And I wanted to show that One idea is you give your kids a journal. It doesn't have to be fancy. It could be a notebook, a composition notebook that you buy at the grocery store, or it can be a couple of pieces of paper stapled together. She told them their assignment was to go out, and when they saw something they didn't know what it was, to draw it and the environment around it. Then when he brought it home, Jake brought it back to her, She didn't have internet, so there was no Google at the time, which the kids today are like, what? How can you live without Google? (laughs) So they used Encyclopedia Botanica, and she used Peterson's Guides. She had had what's called a library. And she, (laughs) she went and she actually helped him identify and use the tools of what do you look for to identify. So as Jake learned the names of snakes and bugs and birds and critters, you learn to respect the wild. There are things out there that you should be careful about. And there are things you should not be afraid about. And knowing the names makes the wild your backyard. And you lose that fear that inhibits you to, from going out. So show Miles, give him a little journal and, and let him draw. Take him outside and tell him in increments. Close your eyes and what do you hear? What do you smell? And in that quiet, he'll tell you what he's feeling and seeing and hearing. Write it down and help him to identify. And do it in increments. It doesn't have to be all at once. What are your favorite parks? Take them for 15 minutes or a half hour. And let him play and get muddy and dirty. And if he wants to build a fort from what he finds, or if he wants to find fairies in the hollows of trees, I did that. You know, (laughs) It's all using your imagination. And then you know what's fun is you're experiencing it with him. That's the joy. Yeah, I love that. And in the second book, it's not just a kid that has to journal, but a a parent as Uh, well. Well, father lost – the father in the book one, he's uh, lost his leg in the war. And that's why Jake is sent to his grandmother's to spend the summer because the mother's with the father getting well. So in book two, they're all back on the island. And honey, the grandmother's feeling better. She's taking charge. She's learning to use the computer a little bit. I'm trying to show that, yes, it's part of our lives and it's all about balance. So anyway, dad is not doing well. He's got a prosthesis and he's trying to discover who he is as a father, as a man. And he's He's got a short fuse. He's, he's got a little PTSD going on. The son witnesses this, and he's, he misses his dad, and he misses that connection. So when they arrive, Scary Harry, an old man on the island, finds his gold doubloon, as I said. And it's, it's very exciting because every kid in the Southeast knows 
Blackbeard buried his treasure and left it there. And it's there for the finding. So we're all looking for it. So the kids are on the hunt. And dad remembers, you know, I remember finding coins when I was young. And it was in our tree house and all the memories start coming back. So the father goes out with his son and his, and his best friend, Red, and the other kids and grandma. They have an expedition to find the tree house where the coins are. So in the search, in the getting out together, there's frustration. There's um, some arguments, but also a lot of bonding, rediscovery. The father eventually discovers, of course, that the treasure isn't just the coins. It's he discovered his dreams of when he was young, what is what is possible for him. The son saw his dad again in a new light, and they all realized that, the, of course, the real treasure is each other, their relationships. It's what, like, the Oz, the Wizard of Oz. You had it with you all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I guess, you know, something that I'm curious about is um, – Oh, I don't even know how to phrase this, but does it take a certain amount of bravery or or nerves for you as an author um, in this time of everything being divisive and everything mm. being censored and all of this stuff that's going on right now um, where people worry about, you know, content more than ever, um, too mm. much, you know, in my case, uh, in my opinion, um, but is it is it hard or scary to, to write about – you know, adult depression and how, how kids can react to that and, and uh, a prosthesis and all this stuff. Like, there yeah. are some real adult themes that I think you address very well in the book. But, um, you. you know, what are your feelings about that? And is it hard to do that? Mm, you know, I'll well, look. I have to say, as a grandparent, I think I'm really sensitive. You get a little wisdom in age. There's some benefit to getting old. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and I'm seeing uh, my grand. I wrote this for my grandkids, and I know the world they're living in. I wanted to hit diversity, but here's, and that's why I have the the army child who's moved around a lot, the African-American child, the young girl. I put them on this island because when you take away all those um, things that separate us, sex you know, or gender, I should say, um, economics, all those issues, and you just put them on a level playing field. You get to know who you are as kids, as people. So that was number one. But number two, your children in middle grade know the world. They are aware of what's going on. If you have a TV in your home, there are very few surprises that these kids don't know about. We should read books with our kids. We should share that storytelling because if you want to, you meaning the parents or grandparents, if you want to share your values and your ideas and thoughts with the kids, talk about the books because you that's an, a platform that you can use to share. You can't hide reality from your kids. But what I like to do, at least for myself in the middle grade, is it's how I tell the story. We don't say the word depression ever. It's that grandma's tired. Or daddy's sad, or he gets, daddy snaps, you know, and come on, daddies do snap sometimes with their children. And the father, it's how they end up at the end, the talking, the sharing, the love, the trust. It's how you tell the story so that the child can learn to negotiate these difficult aspects of life with positive attitude, 
with an equilibrium and armed with facts. Prosthesis isn't scary. It's something that's helping this man walk. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of facts about life that are difficult, but are part of our life. And the more we can talk to, talk to, to our children about them, imparting our own values, the stronger they're going to be when they face that in their realities. Ah, that's really beautiful. I, I love that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, you know, sharing and truth and honesty and all that good stuff. And um, that's that's really cool. And I, I'm grateful that someone with, you know, as big of a name as you have is out there doing that now and, and for Thank kids. You. That's really cool. Well, I love these kids and I want the best for them. And I, I have been known to speak to a bunch of children, hundreds of them in an auditorium. And I apologize for the, in a sense, for the world that the planet the trouble we're in. I mean, not that I did it myself, but for, you know, I'm one of the older generation and I'm saying, I realize that we're handing you issues and problems. I'm writing these books as love letters. This is my inspiration for you to light one candle, to encourage you that we can get through this. And I trust you that you're going to be creative. You're going to care. You're going to make a difference. So I, 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 want to give them that confidence and my faith that the future is theirs. That is truly wonderful. Um, now, you know, you, you've mentioned, of course, Beach House multiple times. That launched a whole series mm. for you. But it, it also became a movie. It did. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, the people that I've spoken to, I don't normally tell a lot of people about the interviews I'm doing just because you never know if they'll happen. You know, things happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've told a few people we're doing this and everyone knew the movie, whether they knew the books <laughs> or not, which says a lot about, you know, our culture right now. It's the power of television yes. series. But um, can you tell me a little bit about what that was like and, and how it felt having this this book that, like you said, you wrote it and just kind of like, you know, it was a, a total change for you. And then suddenly it's yeah. a movie. I know it was. I don't underestimate how much fun it was. First of all, Andy McDowell starred in it. Which is and she, amazing. Amazing. She discovered the book and fell in love with it. And she called me. And it was one of those things where I'm terrible. I'm just like, honey, you know, I'm bad at texting. My friends are always saying you never answer. And so <laughs> Andy McDowell was one of the people who said, Mary Alice, I called you and wrote you three times and you didn't answer. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Andy, hi. And here's the funny thing is, and I told her this too, when I wrote the book 20 years ago, I envisioned Andy McDowell in my mind as the character. Sometimes I create, I use movie stars to sort of have a vision of who I want the character to look like. And I watch their movies to see, to make them uniquely that person. And Andy was the person and I was on an airplane. And I remember I was flying from Atlanta to Charleston on a puddle jumper. There was Andy McDowell and my heart went pitter patter because I'm such a fan. But I didn't say hello. I, I didn't want to be that person. It was 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> so we land and we're waiting for our luggage like you sometimes do on the little small planes. And she stood next to me. And I thought, okay, this is my moment. So I said, hello, I'm Mary Alice Monroe. And I just want you to know how grateful I am that I used you as an inspiration for a character. And she could have just rolled her eyes and said, thank you very much. No, she went with big eyes. Really? I think that's fascinating. What was the name of that book? And I said, it was called The Beach House. And she took out a piece of paper and wrote it down. She said, I'm going to read that book. Well, 
We got our luggage. I walk out. And as I walk out of the old Charleston airport, there's the bookstore. And in the bookstore, the big plate glass window, everyone had to walk by it, was the poster of my newest book and all the Beach House books. So Andy later told me that she walked by that window and serendipity had it where she looked at the title, looked at the piece of paper in her hand, went in and bought the book. That's amazing. So you never know. And she and I are friends to this day. We still want to work on projects together. And she's just so charming. But that book spoke to her about the South, about going, living along the ocean, about she really loved the family dynamics. And I'm proud of that because I write family stories. And in this series, too, it's the it's the relationship between Honey and the grandson and the kids and the father and the son. I write about the relationships, the families. And then on the side, you you finish the book and you think, you know, in Search for Treasure, I learned a lot about alligators. <laughs> Surprise! Yes. yes, yeah. Big Al's awesome. <laughs> Big Al's awesome. He's the maddest, I mean, baddest, biggest alligator on Dewey's. Yeah. And he's real. He's real. Oh, really? He's, you don't mess with Big Al. Yeah. In fact, the number one question children always answer after they read Islanders is, is Big Al real? Oh, yes. And I teach them about other animals and bioluminescence and all sorts of cool things that we call magic. It's just so much fun. And one line Honey says when the little girl says, oh, about bioluminescence, oh, it's magic. And Honey says, who needs magic? We have nature. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Um, and, you know, speaking of that, uh, the, the whole idea of educating through cool mm. experiences, um, you yes. know, that's one thing that I love about zoos and aquariums. And you mentioned Absolutely. that you have the South uh, Carolina Aquarium there. And, you know, I've not had them on the podcast yet, but we tried. They were super supportive, super interested. I was only in town for a day. I was playing a show there and we couldn't make it work that day, but they still had me come out. They were just they're They're an amazing facility and they they will eventually be on on this podcast once I'm able to get back down there. Um, but They're great. You're on their board, correct? I'm on their board, and I'll tell you what, tonight is the launch of our party, a launch of this book at a party at the aquarium. Oh, my goodness. We are going there tonight, ah, and I have, awesome. we're having so much fun. We're, um, it, I helped, I was always there, and I was there during the founding of the Sea Turtle Hospital, and I, I've been on the board. But here's the thing about the aquarium, all aquariums, it does in real life, what I try and do in books, it brings the wild up close and personal. It's educational. Kids are fascinated to see all aspects of nature, whether it's from the mountains or the sea. And the aquarium here has both because you realize that tie in between the mountains and the sea here. And tonight, for example, the, it's open to the kids. We're, we're closing down the aquarium and we're all having this big party and the kids can stroll around and play. We have pirate names. We have scavenger hunts, and of course, we're going to have um, all the exhibits open for the kids. I want kids to go to the aquariums and zoos. It's one of the best ways to get an up-close and personal education. 
Absolutely. And yeah, when you were talking about Coretta, the sea turtle that's the resident there, I knew exactly who you were talking about. And I have all these photos. And you're talking about kids squealing. And I'm like, what what about the professional drummer who who showed up and and, uh, was squealing because I was all excited? Well, I'll tell you a funny story about Coretta. When we first got her, we didn't know, of course, if it was a male or a female. And as they get older, they have tails and, and a long tail started to form. So we're like, ooh, we gave her the name Coretta. It's a boy. It's got to be a boy. But then we did, when they're older, a DNA test, and nope, it's a girl with a long tail. Really? That's <laughs> Yeah, Coretta is a girl. So uh, we, you know, she's never going to probably have turtles with her. But we have had in the hospital females that came in, and they were with, they had eggs, and they laid the eggs. And in one of my beach house stories, I actually had the team carry the eggs and dig the eggs and see if they would hatch again. Um, in It's interesting. We've done it twice. In one book in the beach house, they actually did hatch, but it's pretty hard to get those eggs to hatch in real life, to get them out there after they've been born in the, born in the aquarium. Right. But it's what goes on in the beaches though, especially in Florida where there are thousands of sea turtles is nothing short of amazing. And kids never, ever see it. Not our, are not awed and fall in love. That's why in the uh, in the Islanders, the kids get in a little trouble, making Lovey and Jake. And it's really cute. The kids who read the books identify with who their favorite character is. And they get in a little trouble. And so they have to be do a kind of a, a wink, wink community service. <laughs> so Honey has them on the turtle team. And so in book one, I take the kids and they're out looking for tracks in the morning and they learn all about turtles. So the reader will learn about turtles with Jake, Lovey, and Macon. And in book two, I've always wanted to write about alligators, but they're not touchy-feely. You know, they're not cute. So I had a story set up where I wanted the kids to respect Big Al and they, they kind of think he's super cool. But these other two boys who are only renting on the island, the other, harass the alligators. And there's a sort of a competition between the groups of kids. Ultimately, what I wanted to show through Big Al was he was just minding his own business, living in his habitat and being harassed. And what happens when you harass an alligator is that in South Carolina and many states, any alligator over four feet in length that is considered a nuisance if someone complains. That alligator is removed, and I'm not saying they're moved to another location. Right. They're euthanized. Right. And what happens is we're losing our big bulls. We're losing our alligator population. And it's just one more species that if we understood them more and we acted, we did our part and behaved ourselves and respected their environment, I say if you're going to walk a little tiny dog by the edge of an alligator pond, <laughs> you're inviting him for lunch. So yeah. why get mad? <laughs> it's like, just stand back. Don't bring that dog to the pond. It's a horrible thing to watch. And my heart goes out to the people, truly. I'm not lessening the threat. But I'm just saying the more we understand it and respect it, we know how to live with these animals. Absolutely. And that is so important. And that's why I love education in all forms. Mm. Um, I love that you're using fiction. I love that I use a podcast. I love that there's yes. all these new things that we can do. It's beautiful. It really is. Well, I remember one time we were riding the golf cart on Deweese. And like I said, no cars. And there really aren't any roads. It's more little 
paths. And all of a sudden, we come to a careening halt. There across the path is Big Al, <laughs> all 16 foot from tip to, t- to tail. And we just paused. He didn't move. He just he wasn't moving. He was just laying there getting some sun. We backed away, and we went all the way around the island to catch the ferry. But, you know, you just know you're not going to honk your horn at Big Al. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that seems fair. So I'm curious, you know, you are uh, this amazing author and and um, you, you do a lot to, like you said, educate about animals. Uh, what was your background in what how did you learn both sides of that equation, the animal science and the writing? It's funny. My background is, you're going to laugh. I mean, I always wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. I, I wrote stories. I'm one of 10 kids. It was part of my world. And I, so when my third grade teacher said, Mary Alice, do you want to be a writer when you grow up? It was like, oh, she named what I didn't even know was a job. Yes, that's <laughs> what I want to be when I grow up. So I went forward. And then in college, I went to Japan and studied Asia for a long time and changed my major. Believe it or not, I'm bilingual Japanese. My eight, my graduate degree is in Japanese culture and history. Wow. And I know it's sort of a side detour. I am writing a book about Japan someday, I suppose. It's been in me for a long time. But I used to take my kids to my husband's sheep farm in Vermont. They had a thousand acres, a large sheep farm while he was doing, he's a child psychiatrist and he was doing all his research at the NIH. So during those formative years, those, you know, 10, 15 years with my kids, every summer I packed them in the van and up to the mountains we went and we lived up there. And I started fall, I always loved nature, but I started falling in love with nature. The family was big into conservation that I started like anyone else, any of your listeners, I didn't need a biology degree. I learned the names of the animals, the trees, the plants, what was in my world on those thousand acres with my children. I was every bit as much a learner as my kids. I drew the pictures. I looked up the names. We had so much fun. and It was the best time of my life. When I came back then, I studied biology and I did get more information and degrees and I it was all just adding to my knowledge base but the love of nature is something that is I think in all of us and here's the other thing that's really important volunteering volunteering changed my life both as a writer I met my first agent by driving her to the airport because I volunteered but with every book that I write about a wild animal or species. I do an academic research, learn about it, talk to the experts in the field. But the third thing is I roll up my sleeves and I volunteer to work with whatever species it is, dolphins, birds of prey, whatever. I meet the most wonderful people. I learn more about the animals, working with them every day, learning about them, picking up their debris, so to speak. (laughs) I can't tell you how much volunteering has enriched my life. And I learn more from those experiences than from any book. And I highly encourage listeners, find out what you love and get out there and volunteer. 
Well, I love that very much. That's that's a wonderful message. And you're right. It's not you don't do it to have the cool animal experiences, but it doesn't hurt when you get to have those cool animal you're experiences. Get them. Yeah, exactly. Def- if you love any species, whether it's a bird or a bird, you know, wildlife with uh I talked to someone yesterday as a matter of fact who rescues possums. Nice. I went, really? What are they like? I don't know anything about possums, so tell me. She is passionate about them. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually uh, I, I have I've helped release a couple of rehabbed possums into the wild. No kidding! And little baby possums are the cutest. They're thing so you will cute. Ever see? Yeah. Oh my gosh, she's she told me about the one that had a deformed leg, so they they kept it. And they only lived for about two years, mm-hmm. but she said it, it. They just were so bonded to this little <sighs> sweet animal that looked like a little. The sweet little face it was adorable. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. One of my my dreams for my my near future here. It's it's hard to be incomeless for a full month or whatever. But um, there's a tree kangaroo rescue in Australia that takes volunteers, uh, and you have to go wow. for at least a month. But I I love tree kangaroos, and I would love to go and and spend the month and and you get to you know take care of them and feed them and and like you said you know, clean their poop and all that. I got to be honest with you. That sounds fabulous. Yeah. Plus you get to do it in Australia. Exactly. Yeah, no, that is a big, <laughs> I, I am actively, you know, plotting to make that happen because that is just something. And, and it, it's, I want to go to help the tree kangaroos. Like my intentions are pure, but also I, know, I, I will get to, to hang out with tree kangaroos. <laughs> and be in Australia. Well, I love whales. And when COVID hit, I was just beginning my research on whales and the older I get, though, I mean, I love them and you have to, what's, I don't know what the story is. I figured if I just worked with them and volunteering is going to be tough because there aren't a lot of volunteer groups, but I was offered the chance, you know, come out, Mary Alice, because people know who I am now. And you come out with us and we cut the netting away from the, the, the body of the whales. And that's pretty dangerous territory. And I'll be honest with you, as much as I want to do it, and i Still hope to. The older I get, the realize I I realize I'm not as strong as I used to be. So do I dive in right next to the whale? Maybe not now. Twenty years ago, I would have, but I'm more cautious. And so I'm really looking at um, the love of land, the conservation of property, how we can leave this legacy for our children and our grandchildren. I think that's what's really important right now. And as I get older, I see how important conservation of land is. That's very cool. I I like that. Um, And yeah, that's one thing that I've learned. When I got into animal conservation stuff, I thought it was all about saving animals. But it turns out it's habitat and it's the people around the animals. And I had no clue. I truly had no clue. And now I'm like, oh, this is important. And trees are important if you want to save a red panda. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what makes um, Deweese, where the story takes place, so special. It is a bird sanctuary. Yes. So when I go there, I live on an island, Isle of Palm. But there's so many people who live here, and it's a vacation spot. But I get on a ferry, and I take a 20-minute boat ride to this sanctuary island. And everywhere I look, it's wild. There, I look over there, there are alligators sunning themselves. I look up to the left, and oh my gosh, there's a bald eagle nest. And there's a young juvenile stretching, you know, fledging. I look, oh my gosh, look at that. There's a baby alligator right there by the, by the road. I better stay away. <laughs> everywhere you look. In this beautiful conserved area, there's something wild. 
That's a treasure. And I look around our country at the beautiful parks we're blessed to have. We need to protect them for our children. I'm writing a book about the Ace Basin, which is the largest land grant conservation, 360,000 acres between Charleston and Beaufort. Most of that land was put together into conservation by land owners. And they are hunters. They have lived there um, for generations, some as far back as the King's Grant. And I look at these families who, who looked at their own lives and said, I want this to be here for my children and my grandchildren. So they put that land into conservation and protected it so that everyone, altruistically, we can all enjoy it. It makes the planet a better place. But they also saved it for their own families as well. Wow, that's I've I've not heard about that. That's I'm I'm very fascinated by that. It's it's very powerful. Cool. Any time of type of land conservation and nationwide, there are large communities where they're working hard to put private lands into conservation. It's a great tax base for the uh, landowner. It helps them keep it, but it also is good for everybody because that land is not developed, and we keep wild wild for our kids. We have to really work hard at this. And that's why I want to put these little kids on Debbie's Island because they'll live it with these kids and they'll understand, ooh, that was fun. And they attach themselves to the concept of what is wild. And as they grow up, they're going to protect it. And that is so important. I Thank mm-hmm. you for doing that. That is very cool. Um, so when you, you, you've mentioned this a bit and we've talked about a couple of different animals, but when you are prepping, uh, to, to do a book, you will go out and do hands-on experience and, and such. Tell me about some of your favorite animals that you've worked with. Well, it's hard not to jump, but we talked about the turtles. That's the first one that I wrote about. And I will always have a special spot in my heart, but of all the animals I've worked with, the ones I bonded with the most, no surprise are dolphins. Mm. They're just at another level of intelligence. I worked with dolphins every many different places, but one in particular was Dolphin Research Center, which is in Grassy Key in the Keys of Florida. And what made this place unique is that back in the 60s, when Flipper was being created, the TV series everyone knew about. Yes, yes. Um, we in the 60s could do just about anything we wanted to the earth. It was very sad. <laughs> they they dynamited out a lagoon for uh, the filming of this TV series. Well, the series is done, but now that lagoon is still there. And the Dolphin Research Center is able to have these dolphins um, either breed within the family themselves or rescue dolphins in this natural setting without cement. You know, dolphins, you put any dolphin or any mammal in the cement ponds, I call them, and you are limiting their ability to communicate with one another through um, ultrasound, sonic sounds, and they they get depressed. So I encourage letting dolphins go. I hate capturing dolphins. I'm against capturing dolphins in the wild and putting them into captivity. Uh, it's... It, it's just so painful. They know that they are, they know that they are in like a prison. However, if they're born in a natural environment and they're with their family, the dolphin community is very strong 
and supportive of one another and they're happy. So the Dolphin Research Center in particular, I learned to work with the dolphins, to train them, to feed them. And the level of intelligence is so profound. There was one pond, a lagoon at the big, in the front where of, of the park where they kept the mothers and they're young. And they separate the females from the males for obvious reasons. And the mothers were with their calves. And Tercy was the mama, the matriarch of this band of mothers. When they would bring a young rescue dolphin into the fold, and this one particular story I wrote about was Jax. He was from Jacksonville. They called him Jax. His mother was killed by a shark. He was bitten. He probably had PTSD. His, he, a lot of bites. They brought this rehabilitated baby dolphin to the Dolphin Research Center. And they knew that one of the mothers, in particular, the matriarch, Tercy, had to accept the dolphin. So they put Jax into the pond and the mother kept her children away, her young away, just ignored him. He was different. It was the little dolphin, her dolphin, her child, her calf, who came over to Jax like, hey, let's play. And eventually, because the two dolphin babies played together, Tercy went over, checked out little Jax, and she accepted him. And once Jax was accepted by Tercy, the whole pond accepted him. So Tercy's kind of a badass. She really is. So (laughs) I remember the first year that I was working, and I worked with Jax a lot. That's how I got to know Tercy. He went into the male pond with the big boys. He was okay. One, after the first year, they said, Mary Alice, we're going to put you in the pond on a yellow float, and you are going to be the enrichment toy for all the kid dolphins. <laughs> so they put me in this, it was so great, they put me in this this little raft and put me out in the pond, the lagoon, and all the kids, like the mothers were exhausted. They had a day dealing with adults, you know, all the humans that came to the park. They're like hanging out like any mother would at the end of a day. And the kids are, wee, this is fun. And they were like bumping my raft and jumping over me and <laughs> lots of noise and having so much fun. All of a sudden, Tercy comes barreling in and she gives me, and I can only tell you, it was the stink eye. Oh, and she, no. like, what's going on in my pond? And she chased the all the baby kids away. She shakes them away from me. Then she comes barreling back and she looked at me and I knew I was in trouble. She didn't like what was going on. And she pushed with her rostrum. She pushed my raft to the farthest point of the lagoon and left me there. <laughs> she, so I always say I was put into timeout by a dolphin. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. And then the next summer when I came back, um, I was worried. I came back and I went up and all the dolphins kind of line up and they check you out when you walk by their their lagoon. I looked at Tercy and she looked before, they all kind of looked the same when you first see them until you can identify their markings. So I looked at them all and one dolphin kind of came up really close and went <laughs> and gave me a look and it was Tercy. And she recognized me before I recognized her. And that's how kind of smart they are. And she welcomed me back. She knew who I was and I was okay. And she knew that you had been put in your place. So you went <laughs> oh, <with her>. yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, 
I love that. That is wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of that. Is there anything else you want to tell my listeners to convince them to get into the Islanders series? Although I think you've already done a great job and (laughs) I'm also telling them, go do this. And I'm doing it for miles. But is there anything else you want to say? Yeah, I'd like to say this to me, summertime is the best time of the year. We look forward to it. And if you think you adults think back on your best summertime memories, it's always outdoors. And yet our kids, Miles, he's creating his summer memory now. These are the years that he's going to be able to look back on. So I challenge everyone to go out with their kids. How can you make this summer special? Read with them outdoors, talk to them, but go outdoors. Encourage them to to play, model, have fun with them because they're going to look back on this year and think, oh, this was the best summer of my life. You want that to happen. I love that. I love it so much. And now it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh, no. It's time for the Rossifari Poop Story. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know that I have worked with all kinds of animals. And I'm always amused by the different names we have for animal poop. (laughs) I mean, we have, what, there's bat guano. And, um, oh, my God, where there's, oh, I'm blanking on them all. But there's so many names that you get to know about animal poop. But I'll bet you I know one that you don't know. Okay. Butterfly poop. Do you know what that's called? I have no idea. Okay. Well, I raised, um, for the butterfly's daughter, I went to Mexico and I went to the mountains of um, inner Mexico where all the sanctuaries were and there are millions of monarch butterflies. In fact, so many when the sun popped out, I heard a wind and it wasn't wind at all. It was the rustling of their wings. It was magical. So I came home, and the the migration of monarch butterflies is a miracle unto itself. And I raised monarch butterflies. And I didn't realize that you start from a little tiny pearlescent egg found on a milkweed, which is the only plant that butterflies, monarchs, will lay their eggs on. And so you bring it in, and once that hatches to a caterpillar, caterpillars are eating machines. You have to feed them all the milkweed they can eat for several weeks. All they do is eat and poop. It's the only two things they do. You get poop cleaning every day. Butterfly poop is called frass. F-R-A-S-S. So I always tell people, if you're mad, you can say, oh, frass. (laughs) (laughs) And no one will probably know what you just said. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for all of this. I could talk to you all day. You have the best stories. It's almost like you're an author or something. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. I hope they I hope you have a fun summer. Oh, I'm planning on it. Absolutely. And and same to you. Go out and learn Thank some you. new stuff yourself. Well, all my grandkids come to the island house. They're all here right now, so it's wild. It's chaos and I love it. Ah, uh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 
So there you have it, folks. The Islanders Search for Treasure by Mary Alice Monroe is available now. It actually came out the day we recorded the pod. Um, and yeah, you can go out and get that. You can get the original book, The Islanders, and, and you know, have your young reader or yourself, because trust me, it's a good book, even if you're a bit older than a young reader. Um, you can you can learn about sea turtles and you can learn about alligators and you can enjoy a nice story that that steps away from uh, some of the modern stuff that we all have in our lives. Just go read a book in general. Books are books are good. Um, yeah, so I, I want to let you all know that, um, you know, I may have some more author interviews in the future, but the fact that there were two in three weeks is just kind of how these timed out. And don't worry, this isn't just going to become a, um, a book interview podcast. But uh, man, if I get the chance to talk to cool people that are using art for conservation, uh, and especially at a national level, like like uh, Elliot and Mary Alice Monroe, oh, you better believe that we're going to have them on here, right? But I'm, I'm curious, let me know what you guys think of these interviews and, and these authors. And, um, you know, let me know if you're uh, buying any of these books. I know a few of you got queer ducks already and uh, have checked it out and enjoyed it. So um, I'm pretty excited about this new thing that's getting sprinkled into the pod occasionally. And uh, yeah, I guess that's really all I have to say about that. And so remember, Friday will be a new episode of Rasafari Zoo News. And in case you missed it, on Saturday, I put out a special report, Rasafari Zoo News, looking at some of the stuff that veterinarians are facing right now. Um, you may be surprised. You may have some learning to do on that one. So go, go check it out. And uh, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.